This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode of Crybabies was recorded live at Fisher Center Bard in Annandale on Hudson, New York. FisherCenter.bard.edu. You come off so cavalier. No one's ever seen you shed a single tear. I'm Sarah Thayer. I'm Susan Orlean. And we are the co-hosts of the podcast Cry Babies. This is our second show at Bard. We were here last winter as well. So we're happy to be back. Yeah, I am. <laughs> so am I. Oh, all right. happier. Let's yeah, really. No, we're not um, supposed to be happy. We're supposed to be cheering. Oh, you're right. Well, we can be happy at the top of the show. Uh, basically, what if you're not familiar with our show, uh, we interview interesting, creative people. Hopefully they're interesting. Um, but always creative people about the culture that makes them cry. Books, movies, TV shows, plays, statues, commercials, commercials, Supreme Court decisions, songs. Yes, we did have somebody, remember, we did have a guest who had a speech by RBG was one of his crying cues. Yeah, it was great. We go highbrow sometimes. Yeah, and mostly we go lowbrow. Yeah, mostly Um, we go Pixar. (laughs) (laughs) Pixar movies seem to be our most popular cues, which... Actually, that is, I think, overall, in our very unscientific analysis of what people have brought to us, Pixar movies are number one. Yeah, they're very good at what they do. Yeah. It's either the montage and up or when they're um, the Holocaust scene in Toy Story, the, the oven scene yes. in Toy Story. I don't know. It just makes people cry. Well, anyway, let's get the show started. Um, our first guest tonight is the writer, uh, God, he's everything. He's a comedian. He's the Swiss Army knife of performance. Yes, he's he's an author. He's a comedian. He's a director. He's a founding member of the comedy troupe The State. Uh, He's written, I think, seven children's books and four adult books that aren't adult. Four adult with a small A. Yes, adult with... All right. Yeah. Well, let's welcome out out here uh, Michael Ian Black. Thanks. Hi. Hi. Oh, yeah, you can hear me. Hi again. I sound great. I know these look like maxi pads, but they're actually Crybaby's brand tissues. All right. Um, so we have swag. Yeah. This you, is not a low-budget show. You can use them at for a maxi pad if you want, Michael. I do want. <laughs> My leakage is of the anal variety, oh, however. Terrific. Uh-oh, already work. going blue. It'll work, it'll work. Um, so tell us, are you a big crier? Um, here's what I am. I have recurring dreams uh, about once a month where I am weeping. The circumstances don't matter so much as just in the dream I find myself weeping uncontrollably. Uh, and I think it's because I am unable to weep in awake life. Uh, really? Yeah, because of my toxic masculinity. So, so, 
So we should actually put you to sleep now. Yeah. Oh. And you, then do the show. Right. You wouldn't see it, I don't think. <laughs> but in inside, it, I would be a mess. Wow. But you, you're not a, a public weep, weeper. No, not often. So you can't remember the last time you. I, well, the, I think I do. I remember the last time I had a, a public weeping was years ago towards the end of my relationship that predates my current marriage. And I've been married for 20 years. And we were at the restaurant that you and I were talking about, Prack Stage, Mary Ann's right. in New York City. And it was towards the tail end of that relationship. And I don't remember why, but I, we weren't getting along. And then I just started bawling uncontrollably at this restaurant for what felt like seven or eight hours, but was probably only a few minutes before, before I had to leave because I couldn't stop. It was timed, actually, and it was seven minutes. <laughs> crying, crying in a restaurant is kind of the worst because then you have to, like, especially if you're schnotting and, yeah. and Mary really crying. And then the waiter comes over. Oh, it was and terrible. Never know and and the, 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 the tables are all kind of like this close. Oh, yes, New York style. Right. So, you know, I had, we had people, you know, like six inches apart from you got us. your elbows in. Yeah. You're trying to dip your chips in the salsa. I think the only thing worse is having a fight in a restaurant. But I don't think often I've ever the done fight that. is followed by crying. Right. So it's a twofer. This <laughs> <laughs> is two of the worst. I've done both. Yeah. And and then I always feel when they come to offer you more water, I think, does it look like I want more water? <laughs> yeah. Don't I appear fully hydrated? <laughs> yeah, there's nothing they can say that will make it better either, because anything they say is just going to be so mortifying that you have to have an interaction with someone. And Right. I, in my memory, no waiter approached. I think they knew to keep their distance. Right. In, in the meantime, moment. did your girlfriend get up and leave and you stay there for your... No, she was concerned about me because she'd never seen me in that state. And uh, uh, I remember her expressing uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, I don't know if it was uh, fear or concern or what. But she wanted to make sure I was okay. It could have been disgust. Oh, undoubtedly. It was partially that. Um, And yeah, we eventually left. That was the last time I feel like I really, really cried in in public. Who paid? That's why I was crying. It was a very expensive (laughs) meal. All right. Well, let's get to your... You you did give us some crying cues. Yes. Crying cues are... The clips that we play that are things our guests have told us have made them cry. So I know you've cried at least a couple of times because you gave me two. Well, these are the, these are these are cues for me that give me the feeling of crying, that don't necessarily precipitate actual crying. Okay, all right. So but they give you that deep inside yes. heartache. Yes. Yeah. And right. these are these are good ones. All right. So your first one is uh, the 1975 Bob Dylan song "Buckets of Rain" from Blood on the Tracks. You look a little moist. Buckets of rain. Buckets of tears. I mean, he says tears right there. But that's not going to get you. I don't know what I'm, I'm very literal. <laughs> get it? Rain. <laughs> you got all the love, honey, baby, I can stand. So talk a little bit about choosing this as your cue. Well, you know, I've heard this song maybe 500 times. I'm still not sure what it means. Uh, but I've often thought, and my wife is here tonight, when I die, play it at my funeral. It feels like a farewell song to you me. You better get that in writing. She might play something else. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I don't need a funeral to begin with, but uh, after, after you've dumped my body in a shallow grave, feel free to play it, you know, on, on the car home. Uh, well, I think the song is about, it's about telling a lover that you still he still finds her attractive. Yeah. Even though she's old. <laughs> or or <laughs> dead. Point, or dead, or, yeah. Oh, is that what it means? I think it does, but there is, one, <laughs> there is one lyric in it that's about friends dying that when I was listening to it, 
Seeing pretty people disappear like smoke. Friends will arrive. Friends will disappear. That if really, you want me, honey baby, I'll be here. That really got to me. Now, that, that actually suddenly made me feel like I was going to cry. I know. Well, That's very... Yeah, it's, uh, it's about steadfastness, I think, and the, and, and the way certain things are, uh, certain relationships are permanent and impermeable. So the buckets of rain and the buckets of tears, you know, I, I've got buckets coming out of my ears, uh, buckets of moonbeams in my hands. It, it, it's just, it's all the stuff that, that no matter what happens, I'll be here, I'm here for you, and... I'm I'm steadfast in my devotion to this. Oh. Right? Sad. Yeah. Beautiful. It is. I mean it's it's that beautiful sad because the sentiment is actually gorgeous. Meant to be heartening. Oh yeah. Encouraging that not everything is transient. Oh, I don't find generally sad things particularly sad. Yeah. I laugh a lot at things inappropriately. Like I'm reading this book Jude the Obscure uh by Thomas Hardy, and I host a podcast about it called The Obscure, and there's a, there's, there's a scene in it where uh, he's in love with this girl, and, and, and she's staying at the house across the way, and in the middle of the night, he hears a rabbit caught in a trap, and he goes over to, to help the rabbit, and then he smacks it on the head to kill it, and I just burst out laughing when I was reading that, uh, because it was... <laughs> so graphic and, and unexpected and he was in fact caught in the trap and she was caught in the trap and it just seemed funny to me. Yeah, <laughs> I understand shouldn't. laughing at inappropriate stuff but I really do agree with the general the view of like the therapists that say it's because you don't want to deal with the underlying pain underneath it. Well, duh. Yeah. <laughs> also, do you know what rabbits sound like? They actually do scream. No, could you? Oh, what, what, what would it sound like? I can. I'm, oh, my registers oh, oh, were far oh. too time low. Out. Time out. Time <laughs> out. No screaming rabbits? Yeah. yeah. Screaming <laughs> rabbit imitation? <laughs> oh. Well, no, feel free. Go, you know what? Go ahead. I don't want to we'll, step We'll on work your buzz. that into our next show and we'll have it be a The rabbit cue. scream. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. And your next cue is another song, which kind of took me by surprise. It's the song by Alphaville, Forever Young, which is like a German synth pop band. And what year did this song come out? 1984. Well, yep. there you go. The 80s are a reason to cry anyway. <laughs> well, it's, it's from my formative years, which is why. You so know, tell, it, tell us about it. So this song I heard for the first time at sleepaway camp mm. when I was like 14 or something. And I remember a group of us in, I feel like it was late at night, probably 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night, uh, laying out like on a field by the tennis courts or something, looking up at the stars and playing this song again and again and again, and feeling like that moment was one of like sort of blissful but fleeting youth, that idea of Forever, being forever young and sort of understanding in that moment that it was kind of already gone by the time we were experiencing it. And it was like creating nostalgia in the exact moment that you're experiencing yes. it, yeah. um, which I think you can only do as a 14-year-old or something. And, and feeling that full pain, that kind of, uh, it, it's almost like a bloodletting at that age of just feeling utterly exposed and vulnerable. Right. And so when I hear the song, it sort of takes me back to that. I think so, there's a lot of it, like an inordinate number of summer camp songs are about, n we're not going to grow up, we're going to be forever young, we're going to remember this moment. And it is like the first moments of nostalgia yeah. and wistfulness. Yeah. Which that I also think that you listen to music at summer camp in a way that's so full-bodied and so emotional and your associations are so intense. It's hormones. It's, well, <laughs> well, it's that. It's and it's also, you're on your you, own. You're aware you're that the, t yeah, you're, you're on your own. Yeah. You're aware in a way that you're not during the rest of the year that time itself is so fleeting because you're only there for such a limited amount of days and you're, you're experiencing this, this freedom that you've never had before. And in, in my case, summer camp was all about girls 
and all about like finding girls to like make out with. And was it easy to sneak well, away and make out? The, well, the, 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 here's the embarrassing part of it: is that this was theater camp, Ooh. and so when you're a straight boy at theater camp. It's incredibly easy to find yeah. girls who will make out with you. Was it stage door, man? It was stage door. Yeah, my daughter went there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're 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 already the, the female to male ratio is already skewed, and then the straight to gay ratio for guys is all is also very skewed. So if you can even string a sentence together, somebody will make out with you. At theater camp. <laughs> she was young when she went there, and there were a lot of kids there that she assumed were gay but hadn't come out yet and then were wanted to make out with her. Oh. And she was like, are you sure? (laughs) She might have helped some of them along in the process. (laughs) And she was like 11 at the time. Yeah, 11. And they're like, yeah, sure, I'll try. Oh, an old soul. (laughs) For sure. Um, So this was, uh, I mean, one of the things about this song, I understand the sentiment is incredibly sort of emotional but the video made me laugh because i don't know that i've ever seen the video oh my god the video it's, it's like this band is like flock of seagulls the hair times and that's why i'm saying yeah. the 80s had some there was some great music but then when you couple it and as you're watching the video and trying to really embrace this sort of beautifully melancholic lyrics and then you're looking at the hair which goes up and crests like a tsunami. And it's very hard. It was hard for me to... I did a little research about the video. It was filmed in a sanitarium in England. And at the end of it, everyone, it's a bunch of different people just dressed in really surreal ways, and then they all enter a portal at the end together. A little heavy-handed symbolism, I think. Yeah, well, let's listen. Those chords. I know, it's very churchy in the beginning. Let's dance in style, let's dance for a while Heaven can wait, we're only watching the skies Hoping for the best, but expecting the worst Are you gonna drop the bomb or not? And his voice is echoing let into infinity, do you hear it? Well, that may, yeah, <laughs> that's right, they're in the, the glowing portal never, Sitting in a sandpit, life is a short trip The music's for the sad man There's something about, you said, listening to it over and over and over again. They, we don't really do that with songs anymore, I don't think. Well, no, I think that's a phenomenon of youth. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, you absolutely. listen to songs over and over and over, so they are deeply embedded. And actually, it's, you hear music differently when you're that age. And this is not just anecdotal. It's actually been borne out by this neurological study that you hear music, your brain is more receptive to music when you're that age. And that's why people say, oh, they don't make good music anymore. They stopped making good music when I was in high school. It's because you hear it differently. Right. But you also listen to the songs over and over in a way that, as an adult, you probably don't. Right. When you're, when you're a, a toddler... And in early literacy, you want stories over and over again. And then I guess, yeah, you graduate to songs for some reason as you get a little older. And then for me as an adult, it's just naps. That's what I want over and over. Do you know what I love, though? This is one of my favorite things about having kids is that they have recharged, like, my interest in music and ability to learn about and accept new music. And it's pretty great because if if there's a song that they love, that I can't stand. I just learn all the lyrics to it and sing along with it, and then they never want to listen to it again. (laughs) Great technique. Small small price to pay. (laughs) Um, All right, we're going to bring out our next guest. She's going to talk about something that's very close to my heart, too, the music of Simon and Garfunkel. Um, Our next guest is Karen Chi. She's a comedian. She's a writer for Late Night with Seth Meyers, who is such a great uh, show host because he actually has writers on. You probably know about this. Like, it's, yeah, he actually reads books and has writers on. Um, so I would like to bring Karen out if you want to play some of her intro music. 
America by Simon and Garfunkel, which is such a, maybe the ultimate road trip song. What do you think? Totally mournful. That's a good, that's a great choice yes. for a sad song. It's really good. Here he goes. Here it comes. I can just sing it. Ooh. We're having some technical difficulties. Can you pass me a cigarette? I, I think there's, there's one, one in my To me, that was the first time, like, I feel like, like that lyric, I felt like, was the first time I heard a lyric where I was like, oh, you can just write stuff about, like, real stuff. Right. Yeah. Like, you it doesn't have cigarette. to be... It, that was a ama- that was kind of a revelation to me. Yeah, yeah. that you could write a lyric was pass well, me a cigarette. My parents Karen. had my parents actually had two Simon and Garfunkel at bookends and the Parsley Sage Rosemary and Thyme eight tracks and two Barbara Streisand eight tracks and that was all the music we had in our house. <laughs> That's all you need. Yeah, and my mom only liked classical music because she said that lyrics made her feel like she was going crazy. Cry, baby, cry. Here we go. Karen Chi. Karen Chi, get your butt out here. Do you need a table or anything for your notes? Okay. Why don't you stand here? Oh, great. Oh, my gosh. Hi, everybody. Hello. Um, Thank you. I'm Karen, and this song is, as they mentioned, America by Simon and Garfunkel, who, if you don't know them, I would highly recommend. Cool new up-and-coming duo. You can, you know, probably stream them on Bandcamp. They're probably online. Um, Yeah, I picked this song because it is my favorite Simon and Garfunkel song, and they're a band that I've loved for a very long time. Um, I I, I realize that most Simon and Garfunkel songs have sort of an inherent melancholy and, like, nostalgia to them. I will say that because I am young, hip, and cool, um, I didn't really recognize this until very recently. Of course, by young, hip, and cool, I mean kind of dumb. Um, but yeah, I think they. a lot of people associate their songs with kind of like heartbreak or tenderness or just sort of a sense of sadness that sort of underlies a lot of things in our society. And um, I always thought of them as sort of warm and calm until very recently I was out for a walk. I live in Brooklyn, and so I was walking through... Prospect Park and listening to the song and it sort of hit me in a new way that made me sob and I'd like sit down on a bench and cry and then get back up and keep walking home. Um, So for context, I know about Simon and Garfunkel because I grew up listening to it with my parents. My parents are very, very wonderful and kind people. Their names are Eunice and Kenny. They are Korean immigrants who moved to the U.S. back in the mid-80s and for context on like what my parents are like, my my dad, his name is Kenny, is maybe one of the most earnest and sweet people I know. A very good example of this is that when he first moved to the U.S., uh, he got to pick his own legal name, and when he 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 so he you know he gets there and a lot of people are picking names like Nicholas or like Francis or things that sound intense, but. My dad really likes the jazz musician Kenny G. <laughs> and that's a musician who, no offense in case there are huge fans here, I think most people like him kind of ironically. My dad loves him so sincerely. I will also say my dad is not a musician at all, he just loves smooth jazz. So when he gets to the desk and he gets to pick his name, he realizes that his last name translates to English as Chi. So he picks his first name to be Kenny, so his legal name is Kenny Chi. <laughs> and now his whole life is sort of an ode to this man <laughs> who recently just showed up in Kim Kardashian's home. <laughs> so there's the American dream for you. But um, So that's my dad. He's very sweet, very earnest. And then my mom, Eunice, is sort of the person who holds down the fort and also just runs our family. And she's really awesome. She's very determined. She's very smart. She's very kind. Uh, a cool way to sort of illustrate their dynamic is that I, when I was asking them about my aunts and uncles and a few people, you know, further relatives I don't really know very well, my mom told me that a good rule of thumb about our family is that it's full of really strong women and very gentle men. And then I remember seeing my dad open his mouth to say something, close his mouth and just nod. (laughs) And I was like, oh yeah, okay, cool, I see it. (laughs) 
that makes sense to me. Um, and uh, my parents moved here separately. They didn't know each other before they moved to the U.S. After they moved here, they met through a friend and got married. When my dad first came here, I think he briefly had the option of moving to New York, and I think that felt a little bit too sort of scary and otherworldly to someone coming from Korea, and so he moved to Texas, which, <laughs> wrong choice. Um, <laughs> but he moved to Texas, and he got in his mind the idea of a good American man as being like a very Texan man, and that he sort of fell in love with Americana, he listens to a lot of banjo music, he loves John Denver, um, a lot of things that you maybe would not associate with like a five, six Asian man. Um, and so that's, those are my parents, and something that I think is important to note about them is that they came here really believing in the American dream, um, and I think it's important to sort of show very quickly the difference between, in my mind, the American dream, which is an intergenerational story, versus American individualism, which is about one person and I think one specific generation. So my parents came with the former, as I think many immigrants are wont to do. Um, and so my brother and I were born in California, or I was born in California and we grew up there, and we went on a lot of road trips as a family, and kind of like you mentioned, our favorite road trip songs were by Simon and Garfunkel. And this was the music that was then becoming like the soundtrack to my childhood, which if you think about it is kind of odd, right? It's this immigrant family in a car sort of rolling through the highway, rolling along the highway, uh, deeply entrenched in Americana, and it feels at once kind of like an anomaly, but also just a total cliche, as I feel like most immigrant experiences are sort of a mix of both. Um, and I then came to associate this band with just the pure, happy, joyful memories of my family, because we always heard them in these lovely contexts. Um, and they always make me feel very calm and serene. And so now I live alone, or I, lived, I don't live with my family in Brooklyn, I live alone. And um, I listen to them when I want to feel grounded and centered because it reminds me of sort of the comforts of childhood and feeling very protected. Anyway, um, so flash, for, flash forward to that day in Brooklyn when I was walking through the park. I was walking, listening to music. This is my only form of exercise is walking. So it's integral to my body, which as you can see looks amazing. And if you're listening on the podcast, imagine it, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, but I was there, I was walking along the perimeter of Prospect Park, uh, on one side is like the very gravelly street and lots of cars, the other side is like a row of trees. I think there were probably lots of birds, but their sounds were overwhelmed by the car exhausts and such. So I was going down and my parents call me, I call them very often, so it's not crazy. Um, and I was telling them I had just been listening to America, and my dad described the song as like sweet but very, very sad. And I had never really thought about it that way before, um, and also never thought about my parents thinking of these songs with the sad undertone to them, right? Because I only thought of them as our happy road trip songs. Um, and I talk with him for a little while, and I go, okay, like, nice conversation, they're both doing well. And then I go back to walking, and I pick up back in the middle of the song, and then it sort of hits me that the music I had always thought of as calming and centering was instead for my parents something that was full of yearning and a sign of unmet expectations and unmet dreams that they had moved to America with and that the sounds of Simon and Garfunkel and the America that, that was depicted in these songs were not only the people they wanted to be and the people they wanted to be friends with but a place they wanted to live in and that the actual America is often condescending to immigrants and not very kind about the fact that they are not native here. Um, and yeah, it was the first time I had realized, oh, this thing that feels so first nature to me that I've taken for granted, I got to take for granted because I was born here. And this music that feels calming to me is only calming because it was once full of yearning for my parents. And that really struck me in a moment of just intense, it was wild. I was just walking down a path and then I sat down on a park bench and I cried because I realized, um, I think my body sort of reacts to conflicting emotions with tears. And there was this moment of intense gratitude for my parents because in the terms of the American dream, right, intergenerationally, it, it, this is a success. 
they moved here, they had a harder life than I did, but because they did, I now get to live in New York, a place that was once scary to my dad. I'm pursuing a career that's full of creativity and it's my passion and it's not something out of necessity. And I'm so grateful to them. So in terms of the American dream, we succeeded, but in terms of American individualism, which I feel like is such a big core tenet of this country, the odds were stacked against my parents from the start. And they, the Simon and Garfunkel they hear will never be the Simon and Garfunkel that I hear. Um, and then I sobbed like a baby. Aww. Have a great night. <laughs> Come and sit down, Karen. That's really beautiful. How old are your parents? Um, my dad is 61 and my mom is 59. Are you crying right I now? Know. Ah! I know. so easily. Ooh, ding, ooh, ding, ooh. ding, 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 ding. Um, okay, so, so I think so, that's, that whole generational difference in how you hear the same songs is really beautiful. But Simon and Garfunkel, for people like your parents' age and even my parents' age, they were such a huge cultural thing. Remember when they had a concert in Central Park and it was like yeah. yes. the, the event of the decade or whatever? And their songs are like, I think because they are story songs and they have those details like, you know, pass me a cigarette or, or we're walking down the street or, you know, that you absorb those stories and you think they're memories. Yes. Oh. <laughs> and yeah. so when you listen to the songs later, you feel like, it, rem it evokes something more than just yeah. lyrics. Well, and it's also very funny because I think I grew up thinking of Simon and Garfunkel as being sort of poppy folk um, songs you could kind of sing along with and they're the easiest songs to learn on guitar so everybody in the world plays them on guitar. And then listening to them now, I think, oh my God, these songs are all thoroughly depressing. All of their music is incredibly despairing and sad. I mean, it, it really is. Well, there's something, yeah, like, what, what's the one, Richard Corey, about the guy who puts oh, his head in the oven? Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a One downer. of the lightweight ones. But I also feel like, for me, being a woman, and I love Simon and Garfunkel, and so many of their songs are about being, you know, boys, right. to me. And, that, and I just love them for that reason. And like now I'm an old person and I've got a kid going to college next fall. He's probably going to be going to college in New York. So when I listen to things like The Only Living Boy in New York yeah. and Bleecker Street, I just want to lay on a carpet and sob. <laughs> it's gotten... It but you be, know what? I used to be like, yeah, I'm going to be the only living boy in New York. Right. But I now it's like the song. Yeah. Or, I mean, listen to the, some, like the boxer. What could be a more depressing song? I just think <clears throat> because they were songs that I, I think as a kid I heard them and just heard them in a different way and didn't hear. I mean, those guys were pretty world-weary when they were not even all that old. Mm -hmm. They were writing old people songs. I honestly thought that Bridge Over Troubled Water when I heard it as a kid was a song that was hundreds of years old. <laughs> I didn't understand that that song did not pre-exist uh, Simon and Garfunkel. I think that's their genius, is they write all of these songs that you can't believe they didn't Inherit. already exist, and that they simply put it down on paper, right. like Homeward Bound. I mean, you think, well, that's like from the 20s, right? Or It just feels like it's been for, around forever, so it sounds like part of the way you hear music almost right it sort of feels like it validates or it reinforces the way you've already been living your life yeah. like it doesn't come in and change anything for you you're just sort of like oh wow i didn't realize i could look closer at something this way yeah i just thought of a happy simon and garfunkel song yes. and it's the one that i think i liked the best as a kid which is feeling groovy Ooh. the oh. 59th street bridge song but Except got to be something dark. Yeah, in that. there. Okay. It, well, it also has a weird minor key kind of sound. And it's not like I mean, think about it. Can, you want to sing? Anybody want to sing? And he's talking it? to a lamppost. Yeah, right. <laughs> Obviously, deleted. it goes like this. If I recall, slow down. You move too fast. Got to make the morning last just 
kicking down the cobblestones, looking for fun and feeling groovy. Oh, oh you made well that sound done. ominous. Yeah. 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 You said it was a minor key, well, and, and I can't sing in any key, so yeah. maybe I stumbled into it. One thing that Pretty they good. had on, on the Bookends album, too, is they just went to a retirement home, an, an old Hebrew retirement home, and recorded old people talking about, I can't get up the mucus. <laughs> and that was like my favorite track as a child. <laughs> I was a weird kid. My sisters and I, once our grandmother went into a nursing home, we stopped playing Barbies and just played nursing home all the oh time. God. And would push each other around in our dad's desk chair. Whoa, that's, it's got a t- It was dark. In the middle of a period of time that celebrated youth, they were writing songs like old people. That's um, uh, kind of amazing and also interesting that an era where young people were sort of deceived into believing they would always be young, they, they were already concerned about being old and aging. Sitting on a park bench with the wind yeah. blowing. Yeah, I mean, it, I think that is one of the interesting things about their music and that it actually is much more kind of mortal concern with mortal issues more than it's the most of the other music that was being written at that time which was all about being young yeah that are just like let's fuck like any songs no oh my god simon and garfunkel do you think they're just virgins no 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 no, no, they're just virgins (laughs) they've never done it um think so no i i feel like me and julio is a very very fun actually you know what this is funny because i remember when i saw carnal knowledge which and if any of you have seen carnal knowledge with art garfunkel and it's so disturbing because he's this angelic figure who didn't their music was not sexy. And then he's playing a sort of sex-addled creep yeah. in Carnal Knowledge. And I remember midway through that movie, I had to stop watching it because I was so disturbed. Wait, have you read... I actually haven't read the book, but my friend showed me the book jacket for Art Garfunkel's book. And a very fun thing to know is that the author apparently gets to write their own book. You would know this, I guess, but the, you, they get to write their own description. And in it, he <laughs> it says, like... Art Garfunkel, it was the equivalent of like getting laid on the road so often that he had to read to calm down. Yeah. <laughs> I think in real life he may have been closer to his carnal knowledge. Yeah. Oh, I know, I know. So. I, and I don't, I think that it, it, it's probably true, but their image was that they were kind of depressive, melancholic kind of navel gazers who were really concerned about you know, mortality. The human condition. Yeah, as opposed to how many groupies there were going to be after right. the show. Or going, uh, let's go surfing now, everybody's surfing now, come on a surfing safari with me. Right, right. which was one of their little-known songs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking back to looking at their album covers, because when you're like a preteen girl who's straight... You're looking, you're always like, who's the one I have a crush on? And with them, I was like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who. <laughs> there were lots of 70s bands like yeah. that. You'd look at the Bay City Rollers and be like, I guess it's that I don't guy. know. If, I, if somebody paid me, I would, yeah, you know, that's true. They were not hunky. I'm like, I guess I'll have an intellectual crush on both of them. Yeah. Is it going to work out? I'm sorry. It was my hormones talking. I'm not that shallow anymore. But it's true. They were not... I mean, they were both losing their hair. (laughs) In In their early 20s. That's why the songs were so sad. Like, come on. Oh, God. I think we might have actually just hit on the, the explanation for all of for this. For everything. They were yes. losing their hair. Your mortality. You, you are aware of your mortality in earlier age, the earlier you lose your hair, yeah. probably. Well, there's, there's probably some truth to that. Yeah. Um, I, I love... Um, I, I would say that the songs that you chose were great. It would have been tough to choose among their songs. For a, a real, I mean, they almost all would be candidates for yeah teary moments. It's true, yeah. I just, um, those are the two I, I think I listened to the most 
before I realized they were so sad, and now the ones I go to when I want to feel sad. <laughs> so, so you've entered that, you're old enough to have entered the era of willfully making yourself cry. Yeah, I mean, I think that happens to me pretty often. I realized a couple years it's ago... It's like how old people masturbate. <laughs> That's great to know. I look forward to this. Um, it, it requires a lot less effort. And you can kind of just be laying there when you do it. It's great. Oh, my God. Um, I'm just yeah. going to sit over here. Yeah. <laughs> Touching you. Yeah. He quietly leaves the stage. Yep. Yeah. Well, why don't we bring out Gary? Oh, great. Because he's got some good crying Yeah, we need well. another crier. Um, our next guest... Gary Steingart is the acclaimed author of such novels as The Russian Debutante's Handbook and most recently Lake Success. I just learned today that he wrote his first book when he was five years old. I don't, I so we're that. all losers. I hate that fact. Sorry. <laughs> um, please welcome Gary Steingart. Come sit by me, but pick up your microphone oh, first. Right. Oh. Hi, everyone. Hi, Gary. So you said backstage, you're not funny, you're sad. I'm so sad. Are you <laughs> no, you, you said that you're always sad. Yeah. yeah. I mean, why should they be? I'm an Ashkenazi male. <laughs> yeah. it's, isn't that part of It's on the same DNA section, the Ashkenazi male sad. Yeah. Yeah, you get sadness and uh, international bowel syndrome, I think. Is yep. It. <laughs> and it's, it's on the Y chromosome. Yeah. The sad gene. So do you, do you cry a lot, or are you just in a perpetual state of sadness? It's a perpetual funk. There's no real need to cry anymore. Uh, the, the crying has been done. Um, when I was a young kid, I cried a lot. Um, there's a great... So I was born in the USSR and came as a kid... Uh, and the, my favorite Russian saying is um, which means they beat you and they don't allow you to cry about being beaten. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. <laughs> that's like Russia's state that's, motto. That's you know? the Russian yeah. psyche right there. When you land at the airport, it's like they'll beat you, so wait, but you, you can't cry. So wait, you learned this as a, as a kid? Yeah. That oh, yeah. Yeah. So the idea was that it, to be a, a boy, a man, you, you couldn't cry, but you were always being beaten. Uh, they beat you at home, at school. <laughs> I remember the bus driver was like, "Hey, kids, let me get some in here." You know. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nobody will notice. Nobody will yeah. notice. I mean, he's all black and blue. Um, so, but the idea was that I love to go back to my bedroom and cry there because that was the no beating room if I locked it, uh, and I could just let you know. I could just cry. Did you have your own room? Yeah. And yeah. Because Russians don't breed in captivity, so I had my own bedroom. All right. Yeah. And were you somebody who would cry just out, out of pure unalloyed despair or over specific things? You know, I would cry, I think, over what I couldn't have, you know, a, a decent relationship with someone, um, a friend, all those things. That's what would sort of get me to cry is the, the, the things that were missing, not the things that were going on. Um, so all the things I picked, I think the three cues I picked were all kind of around puberty because that's when I started to realize that uh, everybody was on a journey, but I wasn't quite on the same journey. I had taken a, a greyhound to nowhere, um, which is the name of my band, by the way. <laughs> Do you, don't you feel interested? like everybody feels that way when they're... Sure, sure. No, I'm not trying to say, oh my God, my tears were the worst. I think it's actually yeah. when you... Maybe it's when you differentiate from your parents, if you were ever attached to them at all. But you definitely feel a deficit all of a sudden, and you feel alone. But I feel like I couldn't quite disassociate myself from my parents in any sense, because we were, you know, there was only three of us. We were a tight immigrant family. Um, it wasn't a happy family, per se, but we couldn't quite let go of each other, because the idea of us being alone in America was so frightening. Um, and I think that's what, um, you know, so the, the idea that was that, I wanted to be another person, but I couldn't, and I think some of the tears were about that. They didn't play you any Simon and Garfunkel music? <laughs> <laughs> did you listen, like, when did, how old were you when you moved to? Uh, 1979, that was the year they let Soviet Jews leave. Yeah. Wow. So, and how old were you? Uh, 29? No. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, aged well. Yeah, uh, yeah, I was about seven, yeah. Uh, but we only spoke Russian in the house, and so there was a feeling that, you know... Uh, so I had an accent until I was 15, and I would practice trying to lose the accent by listening to Neil Diamond. You know? ah. <laughs> they come into America. <laughs> well, 
Well, you know, it's funny. I wish you talked like him. Yeah. I, Can you imitate him? Neil Diamond? I was going to say. That I wouldn't have any problem. You're like, he talks, like he sings. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been an amazing accent to yeah. acquire in the course of coming to America. I tried so hard. And his fashion, too, like medallions yeah. and hairy chest. He has a chest, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and the shoulder pads yeah. that just never end. They go on and on. From here to Yaya, yeah. yeah. So you picked um, a really, in, I mean, you've picked some great cues, but this first one, tell us a little bit about um, how you first saw this and how it affected you. Oh, and the Flintstones gonna... kids commercial. I love it when our guests pick commercials, don't you? I do too. Because... And I hate marketing, but I feel like it's a triumph of marketing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, you guys know this commercial? Uh, yeah. Well, we're going to play oh, it in play a minute, it. Oh, okay. but um, tell us a little bit oh, about before, okay. the first time you remember seeing it. So this was late in puberty. This was puberty beta, you know, uh, so I was about 15, and I was, so first I'd gone to this horrible Hebrew school in Queens. Um, I was sentenced to eight years of Hebrew school for a crime I did not commit. Um, <laughs> And I showed up there, and, you know, and I was a Soviet Jew, and I thought, oh, they're going to love me. I'm a Jew, and they hated anything Soviet. So I had to pretend to the kids that I was born in Berlin instead of Leningrad. You know things are bad when you're trying to convince Jewish kids you're actually a German, right? <laughs> but, so, so, but eventually the, my sentence was commuted, and I, uh, and I was about to leave Hebrew school and go to this place called Stuyvesant High School in Manhattan, which is this kind of holding pen for multinational nerds. Uh, and I was very sensitive because I thought, okay, this is the only chance I have to, ha to be a human being. If I blow it, that's it. And around this time, this commercial happened. Um, we are fleeing stone. So they, they started playing this commercial, and it just made me gush. And in and, and the commercial, you know, there's all these American, native-born American kids, and they're in the back of their dad as the dad rides a bike, or they're crawling up to this water fountain and water's flashing in their face. It's so funny because they're, they're allowed to fail and just be anyone. No one's going to beat them, right? They're Let's watch the commercial. American kids. <laughs> We're going to actually be able to see it on the screen oh, up here. Okay. It's a song that... This world takes a little growing in And 10 million kids are getting all the vitamins they need to help them grow with Flintstones. We are Flintstones kids. <laughs> Flintstones, America's favorite. Oh my God! Look at those happy white children. <laughs> well, not so only, white. <laughs> not so only happy. are they happy and white, but they were like nutrition was encouraged. Oh, yeah, but also, the bones on them—they're going to grow to be taller than five foot, whatever. So the. The thing that made you cry was seeing that they could fail miserably as they are shown to do in the commercials <laughs> and, and still have good nutrition? Yes! And not be beaten. And not be beaten. I know how to put on a water fountain. Jesus, I mean, go. <laughs> Did it have something to do, too? My uh, father-in-law is a, a Russian professor, and his, his friends would come visit him from Russia. And the main thing they wanted to do, well, two things. One was buy jeans. And two was just take me to the best supermarket in town mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because it was like porn for them to yeah. see the availability <laughs> of food. Yeah. So I imagine like a vitamin commercial. Vitamins, yeah. And also remember that the songs I grew up with in Russia geared toward children were very sad songs. There wasn't this kind of optimism that you can take a vitamin and grow. Uh, the Russian birthday song growing up was sung by this cartoon crocodile, Karkadil Gena, I'm trying to translate, um, I am standing with my harmonica on a busy thoroughfare. How unfortunate that one's birthday comes just once a year. <laughs> right? So compare that with, we are fleeing stones, kids. <laughs> Ten million strongs and growing. Like, the, on your birthday, it's supposed to be, you know, this is your special day. Everything stops at your special day, but... They have to remind you, it only comes once a year. Once a year, the rest of the year is hell. Oh, God. So, and, and You'll be beaten. I, I guess the, if, if you were to look at the issue of crying globally, Russians would be way up there. Russians cry a lot, yeah, but, but it's all vodka-induced, you know. 
I, I cry with my Russian friends when I go there. They come here, but you know, this is 800 grams of vodka into the night. Everyone's, you know, we don't even know where we are anymore. And then people embrace one another and cry. <laughs> but it really and men cry um, without shame in public. It's I, I, that's that would men cry in smaller settings. So the traditional Soviet setting was the kitchen. That's where you'd go to get really drunk and cry. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, to, to cry in a public space is not 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 good. Not good. I always love that scene in the, unless you're being poisoned. I'm sorry. Yeah. In the tin drum, where they have the room where they can go, the bar where everyone goes and peels onions so they can cry, <laughs> and it's socially acceptable to cry in public. We've got to have that in Red Hook. That should be our our next. I'm thing. surprised. Red Hook. Onion room. Yeah. yeah. Onion room. Yeah. yeah, the onion room or Tivoli. Yeah. It would fit mm -hmm. in. Um, t tell us a little bit about um, your next cue, and and um, it's here comes the rain again. Oh, by the yeah. Let's just yeah. listen to Let's it because it's to so it. yeah. Good. I think we'll start yeah. by so enjoying it delicious. for a minute. You didn't. Um, <laughs> Do you remember the like you? Because you're funny. Um, only uh, when I went to this place called the Oberlin Institute for Special People oh. did I yeah. was I allowed to make friends. So it's, tell it's the part of the West. What's um, your first memory of this song, if you have one? Well, I saw the video, and the video is incredible. Um, Annie Lennox is wearing a babushka. Look it up on your computer screens. It's absolutely insane. I mean, the, and I had the biggest crush on Annie Lennox. Um, her and Cindy Lauper, um, they were my favorites. Um, you know, because my parents had this very strange version of sexuality. My parents subscribed to Playboy magazine because it was, you know, the first thing you're supposed to do when you came to America from the, from, you were supposed to experience the decadent West and all its decadentness. So we had all these playboys running around, but I could never quite get myself excited about these, you know, the centerfolds you would unfold. They looked so weird, you know, these giant blonde people roaming around. It just, it wasn't me, you know, it just wasn't me. And Annie Lennox looked beautiful, you know, with her cheekbones and short cropped hair. And, uh, and in this opening video, she looks like, kind of like my grandma. She's wearing this babushka, you know. She's like, here comes the rain again. And, and what I loved about this song also is that I could understand all the words. I always had trouble understanding British and American songs because they go so fast. You know, Garfunkel and Simon are, are okay. They're, they're, they take it slow. Um, so, for example, um, so we lived in a bungalow, Russian bungalow colony up by Ellenville and Liberty, you know, those places, right? And um, so there was a song called Our Lips Are Sealed mm -hmm. and, uh, by the Go-Go's, yeah. right? And for my whole life, I thought the song was all the Hasidim. <laughs> because there were all these Hasidic bungalow colonies around us, and people would say, maybe all the you, Hasidim. Maybe you were actually hearing a, a sanitized version that was. That was <laughs> I thought it was, I love Cecile. I love <laughs> Cecile. That was like, I kind of love Cecile too. <laughs> <laughs> She's Hasidic. Um, so this was one of the first songs where I could actually understand the words in English. You know, here comes the rain again falling on my uh, head like a tragedy. I mean, it was very poignant. So the beauty of Annie Lennox combined with the fact that it was a song that I could understand uh, was, was very moving to me. Is that a, a, a crying cue for either of you guys? For me, no. I, I, that was a kind of joyous song for me, and I don't know why. I think it's just kind of upbeat, and I don't pay attention to lyrics very much. Huh. I'm not smart enough to listen to the words. <laughs> I remember being very confused by Eurythmics videos because Annie Lennox was so androgynous. And feeling like she's like 
either a weird woman or a stunning man. And I didn't know how to feel like when I was looking at Simon and Garfunkel. I was like, huh. I think if you Annie Lennox that I have a crush on. Yeah. If I have to pick somebody. Yeah. My, uh, that song played so much and so often that it it sort of wore me down. I couldn't even, it, I couldn't respond to it anymore because it play, it was on, it's still on the radio all the time. Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. Air, I hear it at airports and, and foreign bars yeah, and stuff. Yeah. yeah, It also has a kind of manic uh, depressive quality, you know, that, that was like one's first taste of lithium. It was just so good. It, like, you know, it starts out here, comes the rain, and then it speeds up, you know, talk to me like lovers do. Well, the story behind that is that she and Dave Stewart in the Eurythmics were having an argument while they were writing lyrics and they were yelling at each other and then it started to rain outside their hotel room and she, in her inimitable Annie Lennox poetic way, went, here comes the rain again. <laughs> and he was like, oh, let's put that in the song. Is that, oh, is that true? That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. How do you know these things? It's incredible. I, Wikipedia. Oh, that, <laughs> it's crazy, guys. Oh, I got to get an internet. Totally okay. check it out. Yeah. <laughs> I like how she also comes. Um, I always like it when people wear nightgowns. I think that's yeah. commitment. And she, that's, <laughs> night, that's Russian grandma too. Nightgown right? and babushka. Yeah. So do you in Muy part you, were, you thought this is this? It's grandma. I'm a little bit. I mean, no. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll talk about my grandma in the next cue. But 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 uh, <laughs> but it was like the it was the sexy grandma. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, uh, the grandma everyone wants. The grandma everyone wants, <laughs> and also British. You know, which kind of. Right. That's its own yeah. animal. Yeah. You know, I bet this is the first time in human history that anyone has described Annie Lennox as a Russian grandmother. <laughs> I bet she'd like it, though. Yeah. <laughs> you think? Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing concept. She is always... I read Elvis Costello's autobiography, and he went to school with her. No, oh. Joe Jackson. Joe Jackson wow. went to school with her, and sense. he said everyone was terrified of her. <laughs> Really? Like, yeah, they were just so in awe of her talent. Oh yeah, yeah. I think yeah. she played but the also flute. She, but they, she's they scary. I mean, she's a she's severe and fright. I think she's scary. I don't know. She looks at you with those blue eyes and how, <laughs> melt central tuna melt. Really? Yeah. So, so Patty this melt. was part crush and part nostalgia and part um, the lyrics mm -hmm. made you all. And there, Sad and weepy. And there was this kind of almost crying, like, over who I was, but also this feeling of, can I be someone else? Because clearly she had been one kind of person and then become another. And as I was leaving the horrors of Hebrew school for this future in Manhattan, by the way, we were living in eastern Queens. We didn't even know. I was 12 years old when I figured out what Manhattan was. We thought that the three skyscrapers in Queens Boulevard, that that was Manhattan. Because you know? <laughs> my parents wouldn't let me go any further. They're like, oh, they'll kill you over there in Manhattan. So for me, this was, you know, and Annie Lennox looked like a product of Manhattan, London, whatever. You know, it was, she, she seemed like the future for me. And, and maybe when you cry for the future, you're also crying for the fact that the past is, is almost over. Well, that sets up your third crying cue perfectly, which we don't have a clip of it because it's just the movie Cocoon that you wanted to talk about. And I know you wrote about it for The New Yorker as well. Yeah. So why the movie Cocoon? Well, it's about death. You know, uh, Wilford Brimley and his pals are going to be beamed up by these aliens, but part of the movie is seen through the, uh, the eyes of a very young boy uh, with whom I identified. And at that point, the person I loved the most was probably my grandmother, um, who... We know. You know, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. We but non-sexually, yeah. like in a right. really non-sexual way. Grandma Annie. Grandma Annie. <laughs> Her name was Anya, but no, it wasn't. It was Polya. And she was... Um, you know, she kept talking about dying, as all Russian Jewish women will, you know, since she was three years old. She'd be like, well, next year, I'll see you in the next world, you know, how much longer do I have, you know? And she actually lived for a fairly long age, but I was very worried about her, you know, because she was the one that protected me from everyone. She was the one that would run, she would go to my Hebrew school. I remember, I, I loved watches, and this kid took my favorite watch away, and she beat up the kid, got the watch back, beat up the principal for not, you know, she was a rough, you know. Like with her bare hands? No, she was, a, she, she had long nails, too. She was a I think I'm woman. sexually attracted to her. Yeah. <laughs> I'll show you pictures. It's pretty hot. Got any actually, 90 pictures? Yeah. <laughs> they're all 90 pictures. 
because um, uh, she ran a kindergarten in, during Stalin's Russia, you know, so <laughs> to survive those and not be purged requires a lot of, um, a lot of nails. Stalin was afraid of her. Stalin was scared. He's like, oh my God, Polina Steingart is coming. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but uh, in the movie, it was, uh, you know, these people, all, all these older people get beamed up and they leave this kid to fend for himself. And that was sort of my big worry. Uh, so I remember watching that movie with my dad and then just driving home and just being very, very sad. And I thought, my God, she's going to die, you know, not tomorrow, not the next day, but, but one day. And, um, and about how old were you? 1983, so about 12 years old. Also, uh, Steve Gutenberg was in it, so <laughs> almost every movie that made me cry back then had Steve Gutenberg in it. <laughs> because the Police Academy movies must have been terrible for terrible. you. Terrible. I was in tears. But remember, also, he was in um, a movie called The Day After, a TV show, uh, oh, the movie uh, where yes. uh, you know the world gets vaporized, nuclear war. And, yeah, and you're the last. Among the last people who survived, right? <laughs> Steve Gutenberg, like I, cockroaches and Steve Gutenberg. That's I wish we had Steve Gutenberg backstage and we could bring him out oh. right now. Wouldn't that oh be awesome? God, that would be the. That would I be think great. that's the age though when you're a kid and you realize your parents are going to die. Um, in my case, I wanted one of them to die, so I was like, well, "That's cool," but. Um, <laughs> But I remember my son telling me, he, he just seemed really sad to me. And I said, what's going on? And he went, oh, you're going to die. And I went, no, I won't. You can tell me anything. I completely misunderstood. <laughs> and he went, you're going to die. And I was like, oh, right. And because I'm at not religious at all, yeah. I've never been able to comfort my kids by talking about heaven and stuff yeah, like well, that. So we'll be reunited in heaven. I mean, is, is that, that what, what you're supposed to say? I don't. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> they, my my son still hasn't had that moment of saying, "Oh my God, you're gonna." Die. How old was your son? I think he's about nine or ten. Oops. So more advanced than Gary. All right. But Gary, you did write your first book at age five, and my son has not written anything. So Aww, I'll talk to him. Okay. Um, but Cocoon was also sad in the way it was a strange movie because. So the senior citizens meet these nice aliens, and they get beamed up so they can live forever on another planet. But the kid is left you know, mortal and on this earth. It almost feels like a parable for the way we live today, where baby boomers, you know, will still have social security and millennials are screwed for the rest of their lives. Hey, I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> now Karen's going to cry. Yeah. <laughs> so it's weird how that movie Cocoon actually has, you know, um, thank you, Ron Howard. Yeah. But it, 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 I mean, it was meant to make you cry, don't you think? I mean, I thought it was um, almost excruciatingly poignant and the idea I mean they were so the old people were so I've forgotten now how it ends but it doesn't end well they go up they do they do and it's Walter Brimley. Wow, what's his name? Winford Brimley. Will, yeah. Wilford Brimley. Oh, my God. And Who I just was... thought was an oatmeal spokesman <laughs> until I saw that movie. He's yeah. not just a walking oatmeal bag. He's, he's, a, he's a man, uh, or he was. Um, and he was sort of the ur-American grandpa. You know, he was always, he had the big bushy stuff, and he, talk, he loved his grandson. And he said, uh, in the beginning of the movie, is, um, he said something like, the reason... He said, you're always scared, and you can't always be scared. You know, and, that's, uh, and nobody had ever said that to me. You know, people were like, be scared, I'm about to punch you. <laughs> be <laughs> very don't scared. Don't cry. And then you don't, 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 cry. don't cry. Yeah, but he said, you know, you're, you're a sweet kid, but you're always scared. And I was like, oh, my God, that's me. You know, it's interesting that some of the, when you're a kid, movies that have old people in them really work. I mean, as we've talked about Up and how it really is, I mean, this is an old old guy and a kid, and it and almost... It's kind of creepy when you say it like that. An old guy and a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that young people think a lot more, kids think a lot more about age and about old people than we realize, and that they... They don't just look at old people as this strange other race, but they have a sense of the 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 journey that they're going to be on. And I do think, in the case of Cocoon, in the and Up is probably the saddest instance of that, where you feel like the people in the in between ages are the most irrelevant. 
it's the kid and the old guy and they're seeing each other as bookends and it's really sad it's i mean it's now i am thinking i might cry but oh. i'm debating and it's just it is really my, sad the, the thing about that strikes me at up was i went to go see it with my daughter in the theater and we saw it at the El Capitan Theater in Hollywood where they have like an old-timey organ player rises up and plays uh, organ music before and after the show. So you feel like it's this grand exper- experience. And and when they started the montage about... I was like, am I watching a montage about infertility in a children's movie? Because there's the whole scene yeah. where they try to have kids and then they can't have kids, so they just decide to save up money for a vacation yeah. home, which is not a bad plan. Yeah. <laughs> Having two kids and no vacation home, I'm going to say They save up their money for balloons, right? right? Um, But I think that you don't give kids credit for actually being able to appreciate the idea of being old. Yeah. yeah. And I don't mean being a grown-up, but I mean being old. I I have a five-year-old kid, and he 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 says, "How, how much do I got? You know, how long do I got? He's, he's already thinking about these things. You know. You're training him well to be <laughs> cynical <laughs> and depressed. Back to start writing your book. I know. I'm about like, five, come on. Yeah. yeah, where is that book already, kid? <laughs> well, I want to thank all of our guests tonight, Gary Steingart, Karen Chi, and Michael Ian Black for being here. You guys were awesome and um, gave me a lot of good things to go listen to and cry and, about later. Yeah, and I think, interestingly, we have a couple of themes that emerge completely organically and one is um being an immigrant and the other is rain and we're gonna close out with a little bit of rain we started the show with buckets of rain and we ended the show with here comes that rain again and it's probably snowing outside (laughs) so that works perfectly thank you all for being here thanks for coming tonight everybody Dolly, y'all! This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents! We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf bringing you the best of the best of Lo Mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que nos está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. O donde sea. Spanish Aki Presents. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because. Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.